Welcome to Vineyard Hopkinton. As we follow Jesus together, we experience the Holy Spirit, create a multicultural community, and pursue kingdom of God justice. When we talk about the Bible, I think that that's such a good snapshot of how people engage with the Bible today, right? There's all sorts of responses to it. Some people are like, this is the most ridiculous thing that you've ever tried to tell me about. Other people are like, it's actually kind of helpful. Some people are like, it's just It's helpful, but it's frustrating because it requires too much work to understand. You know, like it's just all over the place with people's uh, experience of reading the Bible. Uh, Barna did, they do every year this thing called a state of the Bible report, which is like Americans and how they deal uh, with the Bible and like what what they find. Uh, And I I took a look at it this week and it was actually surprisingly positive. So I thought I would hand out a poll that was actually positive for once to you. That's always nice, right? Usually in in churches, you're like, oh, great, a poll. They're telling us how bad we're doing again. This one's good. Uh, So they said that 53 of the adults that they polled read the Bible at least occasionally, which is close to monthly. 34% read the Bible once or more a week. 54% of adults think that America would be worse without the Bible. 25% think that the Bible is the word of God and that it should be read literally. 45% believe that the Bible is the word of God and even with a few errors should be valued as God's word. And that's 70%. So 70% of people think that it's God's word and that it should be valued. That's good news. And then 54% think that the Bible contains everything needed to live a meaningful life. That last one is really exciting to me. 54% of people that they talk to, these aren't just Christians, 54% of people they talk to said that the Bible has everything necessary to live a good life. That's really good news if you're a follower of Jesus. Uh, Because the Bible doesn't do a lot of things. It will not give you winning lotto numbers. Sorry, there is no numerology that you are going to find that's going to help you to win the the jackpot. Uh, It's not going to teach you how to lose 20 pounds. It's just not in there. Uh, It's not going to tell you exactly which college that you need to go to. Uh, You're not going to like open it up, put your finger down, and it tells you the name of the school. It's not going to do that. Uh, And it's also not going to tell you the exact way to avoid your neighbor who's really annoying and who keeps bothering you every time that you go on a walk. Like, it doesn't tell us any of those things. But it does teach us lots of helpful things, right? Like how to love other people well, how to actually like live a wise life, how to surround yourself with people uh, who point you towards Jesus. You get what I mean? But it doesn't do all the work for us. And yet, 54% of people think that it teaches us everything that we need to live a meaningful life. You know what the Bible does really, really well? The number one thing that it does, it points us to Jesus, That's what it does really, really well, like above and beyond everything else. And it does it over and over again in verses like John 17, 3. This is the way that you have eternal life, to know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, the one that you sent to earth. You know how to live a meaningful life? According to the Bible, well, spend your life getting to know Jesus. That's where it points us over and over again. And the Bible teaches us how to do that. That's the good news in it. You know, we're in this series called Growing Deeper, and today I want to talk about the Bible, as you may have guessed. That's a pretty obvious thing. Uh, And I want to ask the question, why the Bible? Like, why? Why do we spend so much time relying on this book? Why do we believe that it has so much to tell us? Why do we want to dig into this, like, weird collection of visions and letters 
and awkward prayers and stories that nobody should ever want to be told for thousands and thousands of years. Like, why the Bible? Why does it matter so much to us? You know, I mentioned two weeks ago that for us to grow deeper as followers of Jesus, there's two things that are really important. One is our understanding of who God is. It's our theology. And the other is intentionality with our relationship with Jesus, our lived out practice. And the beautiful thing about the Bible is that it hits both of those. It's our primary theology book. It's the main way that we hear God speak. Relationship and theology all connected in this book that God gave to us. And so I want to spend time asking today, why the Bible? And I want to do it by looking at this great story of Jesus randomly meeting a couple of his followers on a road when they were running out of Jerusalem because life had become too hard. And so we're going to look in Luke 24 uh, after we pray, if you want to join me in looking there. But let's pray first. Holy Spirit, we just give you this space. It's, it's holy ground. It's space for you to come and to move, to speak to us. We want to encounter you, Jesus. Jesus, I thank you that you have given us words that we don't have to uh, make up everything. We don't have to guess. Uh, but your word gives us clarity on so much in life. Thank you that it, is, it does teach us how to live a meaningful life. I pray today as we dig into your word and we talk about how to read it well, uh, that our eyes will be open to what it looks like to live a more meaningful life, following you, living according to your word, living it like you live. So we give you this space. Come and move among us today. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, if you have your Bible there, open up to Luke chapter 24, verse 13. You can grab Bibles in the back if you want one. Open it on your phone. That's fair game. Or look on the screens if you want the easy out. That's there too. Okay, 2413 of Luke. That same day, two of Jesus' followers were walking to the village of Emmaus, seven miles from Jerusalem. As they walked along, they were talking about everything that had happened. As they talked and discussed these things, Jesus himself suddenly came and began walking with them. But God kept them from recognizing him. And he stopped them, or he asked them, what are you discussing so intently as you walked along? And they stopped short, sadness written across their faces. Then one of them, Cleopas, replied, you must be the only person in Jerusalem who hasn't heard about all the things that have happened there the last few days. What things? It's like Jesus doubles down on his naivety, right? Uh, he's like, Okay, you want to give me a little attitude? Here you go. I'll throw it down a little. What things, Jesus asked? The things that happened to Jesus, the man from Nazareth. He was a prophet who did powerful miracles. He was a mighty teacher in the eyes of God and all the people. But our leading priests and other religious leaders handed him over to be condemned to death, and they crucified him. We had hoped that he was the Messiah who had come to rescue Israel. This all happened three days ago. Then some women from our group of his followers were at his tomb early this morning, and they came back with an amazing report. They said that his body was missing, and they had seen angels who told them that Jesus is alive. Some of our men ran out to see, and sure enough, the body was gone just as the women had said. 
can you feel the like frustration and confusion that these people had as they're going on this walk? They are not in a particularly good headspace. They're they're explaining who Jesus was, and they're like, he was powerful. Like, he did miracles that nobody else did. He did crazy things. He raised people from the dead. Like, all sorts of things, like, that are amazing. And he taught like nobody else taught. Like, I didn't fall asleep like I do with the regular rabbis, like, in church. Like, it was really, really good. He actually grabbed a hold of me and helped me to understand what it was that we were reading. It it was amazing. He, He looked like the Messiah. He smelled like the Messiah. So we thought that he was the Messiah. And then he died in the wrong way. And it happened just over this past weekend. Like, this is Easter morning, Easter afternoon, maybe, that this encounter is happening. It's not like days later. It's right after the tomb was found empty. For the disciples, Jesus' death was the end of everything. It was overdone, finished. The Messiah did not die like this. And now... The body's gone, and people are saying that he rose from the dead, which is crazy, and other people are saying that they saw angels, which might be another level of crazy, and so we're worried about the mental stability of our friends at this point, along with everything else, like this is getting a little weird. Uh, They're grief-stricken, they're angry, they're confused. Everything has fallen apart. And they're walking on the road back to their house, as we're going to see. They have dinner with Jesus in their home. You can see it. It's like these people were like, finally, like, okay, we got to get out of Dodge. We have to avoid it. It's too much for us. We need to go home. It's time to get away from this for a little while to figure out what's going on. And this fool doesn't even know what just happened over the weekend. On top of everything, we have to talk to this guy who has no idea what just went on. Cleopas is the person named in this passage. Cleopas was the one who showed the most angst, the most frustration, uh, very clearly. So Cleopas's wife, Mary, we find in John 19.25 that she was one of the women who was at the cross when Jesus died. Mary, the wife of Cleopas, was named as one of the women alongside of Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of Jesus. Everybody was named Mary back in the day for some reason. I don't know. It's different people. But they were all there together at the foot of the cross watching Jesus die. His wife was there, which I would assume meant that Cleopas wasn't really that far away during that time. Cleopas and Mary, two very faithful followers of Jesus who have stuck by him to the very end. She was probably one of the ones who went to the tomb. Like, they've been along for this whole ride, and they're here at this point. Now, potentially, they're on their way out of Jerusalem because they need a little space, and they're heading towards home in Emmaus, going for that long seven-mile walk home. And all of a sudden, this dude shows up on the road and starts to talk to them. And look what Jesus does here in verse 25. That Jesus said to them, you foolish people, you find it so hard to believe that all, the, all that the prophets wrote in the scriptures. Wasn't it clearly predicted that the Messiah would have to suffer all these things before entering his glory? Then Jesus took them through the writings of Moses and all the prophets, explaining from all the scriptures the things concerning 
himself. I, I like to imagine what this would be like. It's like sitting down with a famous author. You know, it's like sitting down with Jane Austen, and she starts to tell you about Emma, and she goes like way into depth. And so she's telling you about the village of Highbury and about all the surrounding estates. She's telling you who the characters are all based off of, Emma and Mr. Woodhouse and Mr. Knightley and Jane Fairfax. And she's going through all of these details, and you're like, this is a little bit too much. Like, I don't need to know that your dad does that in the morning. Like, this is just a little too much detail, Jane. Like, it's a little too much for me. And then she goes into, like, why they needed to have a picnic on a hill and how that was going to affect everything. And it's all a little bit too much. Or it's like sitting down with J.R.R. Tolkien and C.S. Lewis or Jack and Tallers, if you will, uh, as they called each other, and getting some fish and chips at a pub, as you do in England. And Tolkien starts talking about Middle Earth. And he starts really nerding out. And he's telling you, like, why he had to create a separate language for the elves. Like, why it wasn't okay to just take a different language. Or why it wasn't okay to just uh, take parts, uh, like, create, like, half of a language uh, and make nonsense words. Like, why he had to formulate the entire thing. He starts telling you about the entire history of it. And you're sitting there, and you're like, wow, this is a lot of really cool information and fun to see the inside of your brain right now. But honestly, it's just a little bit too much. I'm just a little done. I can't handle it at this point. It's too intimate of a look at your life's and passions and and the history of these things. And that's what Jesus did with Cleopas and Mary on that seven-mile walk from Jerusalem to Emmaus. He revealed to them all that the Scripture said. N.T. Wright wrote about this encounter, and he said, These disciples are sad, let down, and possibly even angry. Beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. This could not be messianic proof texts alone. That means like taking things out of the scripture so that uh, you can prove your point. It was the entire narrative, the complete storyline. He takes him through the, the books of Moses, which is Genesis through Deuteronomy, the first five books of the Bible, And then all the prophets, which is a term that encapsulates the rest of the Old Testament. Uh, Psalms, the prophets, like everything, all the history books. Like He lays it all out in front of them on that walk. And he explained the scriptures. It's captivating, but it's almost just a little bit too much, if we're being honest. You see, Jesus came in their moment of confusion, of frustration, of anger. And he gave them his word. He met them in that spot of not knowing what was happening by revealing what the Bible said about who he was. Have you ever had an experience where the Bible met you and spoke to you in a place of confusion, frustration, anger, fill-in-the-blank negative emotion in a way that kind of cut to your heart? You know, one morning this week I had this. Uh, Sarah and I one night this week, as happens every once in a while, not very often though, But we had an emotionally-based conversation. Uh, (laughs) We'll call it that way, because you don't like to say that mom and dad fight, right? Uh, So uh, we had one of those. And the next morning, uh, I got up, and I was a little tired and in a little bit of a funk still, and just like not, not doing, not feeling all that great. 
And so I drop one of the kids off at school, and then I'm driving to work here. And uh, as I'm driving, I'm like, I need something other than whatever it was that I was listening to. So I pulled up this app on my phone called Lectio 365. It's a devotional app that has prayer and like space to listen and Bible readings. It's like nine minutes. So I was like, perfect, perfect amount of time. So I, I hit play and started listening, and I was kind of listening, kind of still like thinking about my own stuff, you know, still kind of in a funk. And then I heard Isaiah 54.10 read, For the mountains may move and the hills disappear, but even then my faithful love for you will remain. My covenant of blessing will never be broken, says the Lord who has mercy on you. And I heard Jesus just like on blast speaking to me through this. Two things. One was about the solidity that his love brings. Other things can feel a little weird and shaky and, you know, uncertain. You know, mountains can move, but God is always solid. He's always there with us. And the other thing was that last phrase about the Lord who has mercy on you. You know, up until that moment, I didn't realize that I needed God's mercy. And then I heard that, and I knew that I needed God's mercy. And it just cut through. And it cut through, you know, my pride and, you know, like everything. It just sliced through. It was like, okay, Jesus, you're right. I do need that. And it kind of broke through the funk where I was in that morning. This is what the Bible does. It speaks the truth of God to us in ways that we wouldn't be able to manufacture. It it breathes life to us in ways that we wouldn't be able to just come up with on our own. It reminds us that creation was created so that God could be in relationship with us. That the whole purpose is about reconciling us to him. In moments when we've done big things that need reconciled, in moments where there's just a slight little fracture that needs to be sewn together. It reaches across and meets us in that spot. It's good news. So I want to spend a couple of minutes talking about how we can read this good news well, because I think that that matters. And there's just some helpful tips uh, for reading it well that I want to talk about. So I want to throw one thing up. If you want to throw the, uh, the outline up there, Kevin, of uh, perfect, and then just skip to the next one in like 30 seconds or something. Uh, but I'm not going to go through all of that because it's too much and I ran out of time, and it's what it is. But take a screenshot, take a picture of it or email me and say that you want me to send it to you. Uh, But it's just a helpful way to look at the entire story of the Bible. From Genesis to Revelation, this one big story of God's redemption in our world, that he's been up to something since the very beginning. He didn't stop. He didn't get thrown off track. He's continually working at it uh, and moving in our world. He's trying to save us. But just because it's one big story doesn't mean that it's simple, right? Anybody agree that the Bible is anything but simple. You know, like everybody agrees on that one, right? There's groans all over from things that you've read. Uh, it's a collection of 66 books written by at least 40 authors over a period of probably 2,000 years from Moses to the Apostle John when he wrote Revelation. It's like that's a super long time to have a book. Any other book that was written over 2,000 years, we may have questions about. Like it would be a little hard to understand. It has a variety of genres, like narrative from books like Genesis and Exodus, uh, poetry and the Psalms, wisdom, and books like Proverbs, 
Prophecy, there's actually 16 books in the Old Testament just of prophecy. You may not have looked at those very recently, but they're actually there. Uh, It takes up a good chunk. Uh, The Gospels, which is good news proclaimed. It's theology through narrative form. And they include biography and parables and and narrative, the stories of Jesus' life. Uh, There's the epistles, which are letters. And then there's this weird category of apocalypse, which is Revelation and Daniel, where there's like dragons and like women giving birth. It's like all over the place. And you're like, I'm not quite sure what to do with all this. Yeah, it, that's, that's normal when you read some of the apocalyptic literature. And then you add to the fact, if, as if that's not enough, that we believe that it's humanly authored, but God-inspired. And then we just like start scratching our heads and we're like, whoa, we believe a lot of weird things about this book. Like, I'm not quite sure how to deal with all of these things. Uh, one way to think of the, the authored and yet inspired is uh, if, you, if you have a book that's compiled with many different authors and then there's one editor, one architect who places everything together, who has the grand story, uh, who's looking to make sure that it's being revealed all the way through. That's what God's doing in this. And so with complexity like this, how we read the Bible well matters. It matters that we exegete well. This might not be a word that you've heard very many times, but Pete Gregg wrote that exegesis, it's not exit Jesus. It's a different word. Hopefully it's up there. Uh, It does sound like that, and people do ask that, like you're kicking Jesus out of the Bible. Uh, Exegesis is the art of explaining, interpreting, and applying the Bible. So it's basically the practice of asking good questions with how we read the Bible. What genre is this book of the Bible or this section? Uh, what was the author trying to do when he, wrote, he or she wrote it originally? Who were they trying to write it to? What was God's intention in including this in the Bible? All of those questions matter when we're reading it. And context matters. What surrounds the thing that we're reading? You don't want to just pull it out of the text and read it by itself. That's not good reading. If you did that with any fictional novel, it would make zero sense, right? We understand that. But sometimes we do it with the Bible, and then we put it on cards, and then we lose all, like, we just don't even know what it means. So we want to keep it within the context and to understand what the author is trying to teach us. You know, there was a man who wanted the Bible to speak to him, so he picked it up, and he dropped it, and then he closed his eyes, and he pointed. And he pointed at this verse, and he said, okay, God, whatever's on this is what you're wanting to say to me. It was Matthew 27, 5. Jesus, Judas went away and hanged himself. And so the man just shook his head, and he chuckled. He was like, oh, that's foolish. God wouldn't be saying that to me. Okay, okay. I I must have done it wrong. So he picks it back up again, and he drops, and he doubles down, and he points at it, and he says, Luke 10, 37, go and do likewise. Don't be that guy. Don't read the Bible that way. That's a terrible way to read the Bible. You know, it's like spinning the globe and putting your finger and that's where you go. Like, no, think through things a little bit better than that. Read the Bible in context. Read it well. And one more helpful hint. Recognize that parts of the Bible are prescriptive and parts of the Bible are descriptive. So prescriptive means that it tells you what's correct. Descriptive means it tells you what happens. These two things are very important because not everything that the Bible says is prescriptive. For instance, David and Goliath. 
this is a great example. So David hears this super soldier talking smack about God and God's people. So what's he do? He goes and he grabs some stones and grabs a slingshot, as one does, puts a stone in there, twirls it, flings it. A lot of stuff happens in between, but, you know, that's just extra detail. So I'm skipping to the good part. Flings it, hits the super soldier in the forehead. Dude falls down. He walks over, takes the guy's sword, and cuts off his head. Very descriptive, right? Very graphic, very, very descriptive. Not actually a kid's story, contrary uh, to what we try and make it into most of the time. Uh, very, very descriptive. So, what if I'm at Stop and Shop, and I hear somebody talking to their friend, talking smack about God and God's people, and I see the avocados over there, and there's an overly ripe one, so I go over, and I rip that thing apart, and I take the pit out, and then I take the slingshot I have in my back pocket, because that's what you do, and I put it in, and I twirl that puppy and fling it at the dude. Is that Okay. No, 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 no. That is not okay. Uh, I would be wrong to harm him. That is not what God's telling us to do. This passage isn't prescriptive. We're not supposed to go and do likewise. We're supposed to pay attention when people t- speak bad about God and about God's people, but we, we, we correct with love and with, with care and, and with truth, not with violence. Like, that's not God's answer. Learning to read the Bible well really, really matters a lot. There's this great book called How to Read the Bible for All It's Worth. If you want to learn how to read the Bible well, it's a good one for you. Uh, And in it, the authors speak about this whole thing saying, because the Bible is God's message, it has eternal relevance. It speaks to all of humankind in every age and culture. But because God chose to speak his word through human words in history, every book in the Bible has historical particularity It's a word that only an academic would create. Historical particularity. Each document conditioned by the language, time, and culture in which it was originally written. Interpretation is demanded by the tension that exists between its eternal relevance and historical particularity. It matters that we pay attention to these things. And thankfully, Jesus is like, the answer key. He's the thing that helps us to understand how to read this well. He shows us this. And, and John, the Bible teaches us this. John 1.14, the word, capital W, became human. That means Jesus. And he made his home among us. We've seen his glory, the glory of the Father's one and only Son. C.S. Lewis once said that it's Christ himself, not the Bible, who is the true word of God. Jesus is the word. And he reveals the word to us. He's our answer key that we look through. How does this look in the light of Jesus? Through Jesus' teachings and and actions. And that reveals to us what the Bible is saying. So let's look and see what happens after Jesus has revealed all of the scriptures according to himself in verse 28. By this time, they were nearing Emmaus in the end of their journey. And Jesus acted as if he were going on. But they begged him, stay the night with us since it's getting late. So he went home with them, and they sat down to eat, and he took the bread and blessed it. Then he broke it and gave it to them. Suddenly their eyes were opened, and they recognized him, and at that moment he disappeared. Which, I'll just acknowledge the elephant in the room, that's weird, right? Like, somebody 
randomly disappearing in front of you is a little bit weird. And no, I don't have a uh, good interpretation for that other than he's Jesus. Sorry. Uh, that, that's about all I got on that one. They said to each other, didn't our hearts burn within us as he talked with us on the road and explained the scriptures to us? And within the hour, they were on their way back to Jerusalem. There they found the 11 disciples and the others who had gathered with them. Didn't our hearts burn within us as he talked to us and explained the scriptures to us? You know, there's something that happens when the Bible becomes actually like alive to us. When we start to understand it burns, it ignites something in us, it forms us, it changes us. We learn who Jesus is and what his plan is for us and for our world. The more that we read the Bible, the more familiar his voice sounds to us, the more that we begin to understand what it is that he's saying and doing in our lives. We're formed by reading the Bible, God's word to us. And so I want to encourage you to take some time this week and to read the Bible a little bit more. I think this is a good action step for what we're talking about today. You know, if you've never read the Bible, two, two books are great to start at. Luke and John, two gospels that have lots of good stories show you the character and the teaching of Jesus and have lots of cool things that happen in them. So Luke and John, good places to start. You know, maybe anybody struggle with prayer every once in a while? You can, you can acknowledge it. It's probably most of us here, if we're being honest. You know, the Bible is a great spot to, to get prayers from. Just open up to Psalms and start praying through uh, the book of Psalms, if I could even find it. It's in the middle here. There it is. Perfect. Uh, <laughs> so start praying through verses like in, in Psalm 119. Your commands give me understanding. Your word is a lamp to guide my feet and a light to my path. My life constantly hangs in the balance, but I will not stop obeying your instructions. I'm determined to keep your decrees to the very end. If you prayed that on a regular would that change you a little bit? Would that form you in some really good ways? I think that it would. Uh, you know, maybe the way of you're reading the Bible is a little boring, so you need something to, to switch it up a little bit. That happens sometimes. Uh, Lectio Divina could be a great way of reading the Scripture for you. It's uh, a process of reading through it multiple times and giving space to pray. So you read through it once, then you read it again, and you kind of meditate and just sit on it and listen to the Holy Spirit. And then you read it again, and you pray about what's sticking out. And then you take time at the end to contemplate on what God's revealed to you through his word. Maybe you need to commit to reading your Bible every day. To actually letting yourself be formed by the word of God. It doesn't have to be for a super long period of time. But just taking that intentional space to read the Bible and to let God's word form you will change you. It'll get you out of your funk and it'll start to move in your heart and make you more like Jesus. The, Bi the, book, the Bible is a book that requires constant use. And it, thankfully, doesn't get old the more that you, you read it. One person said that the more that I wrestle with the Bible, the more that I begin to understand it. I like that. I think that's true. So accept one of these challenges this week. As we end, my, my, most of you know that my dad was a pastor for about 40 years. And he was a little uh, weird with the Bible. And I mean that in the most loving way. Uh, but he started his day by hugging his Bible. This is a true story. Tells you something about me, right? You're like, oh, I get it now. Every day he would hug his Bible when he started off before he would read it. And then uh, on Sundays, 
before he read the Bible, he would pick it up and he would say, have you hugged your Bible today? True story. He did this for about 20 years. And five to 700 people in the church would all pick up their Bibles and give it a little bit of a squeeze. They were being formed by my dad's methods of strangeness. Uh, he knew that it was an in inanimate object, that it's not like it's going to hug you back. You know, like he, had, he wasn't weird in that way. But he valued the fact that it was God's word that's given to us to guide our lives, to change how we live, to form us, and to make us more like Jesus. And so he gave it reverence and respect and love in that way. And before they would read uh, whatever they were going to read that Sunday, he always had them say this statement. They would say, this is my Bible. It reveals Jesus to me. I am what it says that I am. I can do what it says that I can do. It is a light unto my path, and I will walk in its light. So as the worship team comes on up, we're going to pray. But if you'll stand as we transition to a time of worship, and let's say this. If you'll humor me and give my dad a, a smile up in heaven as he's for sure sitting in the front row watching us right now. Uh, but and say this with me. This is my Bible. It reveals Jesus to me. I am what it says I am. I can do what it says I can do. It's a light into my path, and I will walk in its light. Jesus, I thank you that you've given us your word that we can lean on, that we can rely upon, that speaks to us when we feel it and when we don't feel it, that cuts through the stuff in life and that brings light and life to us. Thank you for caring about us enough to know that we were going to be sitting around for a long time waiting on you to return. And so you gave us your word that we could lean on, that we could learn from, and that we could grow with. Thank you for thinking about us intentionally. We give you this space as we worship. Come and speak to our hearts. Make us aware of your presence here with us. In Jesus' name.